Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bridgehead at AM 530 at 1.30pm. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now the guest that we've got coming up for you in just a few minutes here is, is a really special lady and her story uh, is really, really incredible. Now as you, uh, most of you will know, on this show here we've had some really, really impressive opportunities insofar as that we've gotten to interview a lot of survivors. We've interviewed Immaculate Ilabagiza, who is a, a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. Uh, we've interviewed uh, Ava Schloss, who uh, actually became Anne Frank's stepsister later on and survived the concentration camps herself. Uh, we've had a chance to speak to, uh, before he passed on, uh, Leon Layson, who was the, who was uh, at the time of the interview, the youngest surviving Jew from Schindler's List. And, and now we have, have, have quite a unique uh, a story. Uh, we're going to be interviewing a woman named Hesse Taft. Now, some of you may have seen the media coverage uh, surrounding her flying around recently. Uh, she was actually, not to give away too much of her story, because she's going to tell us all about her story in just a few moments, uh, she was uh, growing up as a Jewish child in the 1930s in Germany, and she had her photograph taken in Berlin by a top Berlin photographer and that Berlin photographer decided to submit her baby photograph to a contest put on by the Nazi minister, Ministry of Propaganda uh, to see if she would be selected as the prime, if you will, Aryan specimen, the prime Aryan child. And this story, as it turns out, and as we've discovered, has been made a complete and total mockery of the the backwards, the cruel, and the, and the stupid Nazi racial ideology, and really show just how ludicrous anti-Semitism is. So before I give away any other details, I'd like to play for you my interview with Hesse Taft. There's been a lot of media attention recently that's been focused on your story. How did that media attention come about? That's very interesting. It came about unexpectedly. Um, the story of uh, my baby picture on the cover of a Nazi magazine was something that I had kept very, very secret for a long time. And um, in fact, if I may say so, my parents insisted that it be kept quiet mm -hmm. for a long time. Uh, during the war, it was obvious. Well, I was too small to know about that then, mm -hmm. but... My parents kept it quiet for obvious reasons because we didn't want to be detected. But after the war, the after we, we got out of Europe and so on, my father, what he got out of the moral lesson he learned from the Nazis, among other things, is that Jews should keep a low profile, that the Germans in Germany were successful bankers while millions of Germans were unemployed and out of work and during the recession, and so resentment against Jews comes when Jews are successful. So my father made it very clear that we should never talk about this very publicly. And so it was. It remained a secret, a family secret, for many, many years. Um, it was not until 1987 that I first spoke about this, when I had the opportunity to write a story, a chapter in a book, a book was called was going to be called The Jewish Survivors of Latvia, remember? My parents were originally from Latvia. Mm -hmm. And um, they, uh, at that point, my mother finally said, well, okay, it's time to tell the story. And 
I did, and the book was published, and shortly thereafter, around that time, the U.S. Holocaust Museum opened in Washington, and I gave uh, one copy of the original magazine, as well as my only copy of the birthday card that was reprinted from it, widely circulated all over Germany and even Lithuania and neighboring countries. I gave that to the Holocaust Museum, and still things were fairly quiet, I guess. I was Still not the time when the internet was uh, high sp- in full gear. Mm-hmm. But so this is a prelude to answering your question. Uh, recently, uh, I mean last month, I gave the other valid copy that I had of the magazine to Yad Vashem in Israel. Mm-hmm. And there I had agreed to be interviewed by the local. Israeli paper, Yediot Aharonot, which publishes only in Hebrew, and I very naively thought it would get publicity just in Israel. Well, apparently I was mistaken, because uh, when that paper does have an English-language online version, right. although the Hebrew, uh, the print version is only in Hebrew. So uh, from there it went viral. I mean, I don't. I think the Bills picked it up first and sent it around, and then from there, lots of other people picked it up from the Bills, the German paper. Well, it's a story I think that a lot of people are attracted to because with all the all the horrible, awful stories that you hear coming out of the Second World War, the sort of delicious irony of of, of how stupid anti-Semitism actually is when you see the Nazis selecting. Um, a baby photo uh, of a Jewish girl as their prime Aryan, uh, you know, Aryan specimen. There's, I think, a, like a lot of people really like what that says about anti-Semitism. But can you tell, just give our listeners a bit of a rundown of, of what your story is? So, as I understand it, there was there was a contest, a baby picture contest, to to, to select a, yes. you know, the ideal yes. Aryan baby. What Yes. What happened is that my parent, my mother, just took me to a photographer in Berlin mm-hmm. to take a picture when I was about six months old. Which year was and, this? And then she, the, he was a very prominent photographer. His name was Hans Belin. And uh, shortly thereafter, in 1935 this was, uh, my baby picture appeared on the front cover of uh, the uh, Nazi magazine. Only Nazi magazines were allowed to pub- be published at that time. And this was a family magazine. And the headline over my picture said, Sonne ins Haus, son in the home, S-U-N. And um, my parents were totally surprised that this happened. So my mother rushed back to the photographer to ask what happened here. And he told her very quietly, closed the door, pulled the curtain, took her to the back of the room, apparently, and told her the following, that the Ministry of Propaganda, which at the time was run by Joseph Goebbels, we all know, although I don't know, I am not aware whether or not he had any direct involvement, but it was his um, department, his ministry, Mm -hmm. that decided to have a baby contest of the, to select the beautiful Aryan baby for the cover of this magazine. And so they asked the 10 best photographers throughout Germany to submit their 10 best pictures. So they had 100 photographs, 
And the photographer told my mother, and I slipped your baby in with my, as my, with my quota of pictures. And my mother said to him, but you know that this is a Jewish child. And his answer is one that I always remember. She told me in German his exact quote, which was, Ja, aber ich wollte mir den Spaß erlauben, which means, yes, but I wanted to allow myself the pleasure of this joke. And then he said, and you see, I was right. So that's how it appeared, how the how it happened that the photograph that is still today on the piano that my father had bought for my mother at the time. I have the piano and I have the photograph. Right. So it's still on the piano, the original photograph, and the um, magazine, my mother was able to keep three copies during the war to take them with her. Uh, My parents were both opera singers. They studied at the Hochschule für Musik in Berlin. But, of course, my father had a contract to sing the 19 leading operas in Berlin, and this was before I was born. And his contract was canceled when they found out he was Jewish. And But they had lots of music. So my mother carried uh, three copies in different operatic scores, one copy folded inside Rigoletto and so on, you know. But I have the third copy, but it's not worth much because the date got ripped off. So So when did the magazine come out? What was the year? 1935. 1935. And I understand your parents weren't very happy when it first came out. My parents were terrified. Um, My father, I mean, this uh, magazine appeared in every kiosk in Berlin, probably all over Germany. Um, it, it, it was shown in the um, storefront of clothes that sell baby clothes, stores that sell baby clothes, uh, where, with an announcement, you know, buy beautiful clothes for your beautiful baby. And it even got reproduced as a birthday card. The photo with uh, underneath it says, Herzliche Glückwünsche zum Geburtstag, which means heartiest congratulations for the birthday. So it was a birthday card sold all over the country and, in fact, beyond. My aunt, uh, my father's sister, who lived in Mamel in Lithuania, went into a store to buy me a birthday card for my first birthday, and she saw this and asked the woman, where did you get this? And she said, oh, I got this in Berlin. And it's not a doll. It's a real baby. It's a Berliner baby. So she quietly bought the card and sent it to us inside an envelope. But the consequences of all this was that I could no longer be taken to play in the park. Right. Um, my dear aunt, Masha, who always took me to the zoo, which apparently was my favorite then, that also had to be canceled out. I couldn't go to the zoo. I went outside, just wheeled in a carriage, but, you know, always moving and never stopping, you know, for anyone to talk to me for fear of being recognized. Particularly after I was one year old or so, uh, eventually I learned um, my name, to say what my name was, which with my maiden name was Hesse Levinson's, Uh and... 
let me assure you that if anybody had found out my real name, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Right. So how did your family uh, navigate the war in Germany? So this was in 1935. Um, tell me about the ensuing decade. There was, it, as you all know, there was, that was before the war. It was the Hitler era, but it was mm-hmm. before the war. Um, there was another very scary incident that happened to my father. Um, I should say my sister was born in 1936, at the end of 36, and uh, in early 37, my father had a very scary incident. He was um, arrested in his business. He went into business after his opera contract was canceled. He set up a very successful import-export business, and he had was luck would have it, he had an accountant working with him, who, I mean, an accountant who came periodically to the office to work on the finances, and one day he was arrested while the accountant was there. Now, this accountant was a card-carrying Nazi, right? and he was, when they arrested him, my father, the accountant pulled the, the uh, typical Hollywood-type trick, you know, he uh, followed the agents and my father, and he got into a car, and he said, follow that car, you know, the other car, the, which landed up at a police station, and the accountant barged through all the gay security things at the police station, barged into the room where they were interrogating my father, and he yelled out, Heil Hitler, and they let him in, and they listened to him, and he said he'll vouch for this man, he would never do any such thing. I think they trumped up charge with some kind of tax evasion, which was clearly not applicable, made no sense. But right. Whatever it was, he was released as a result. And so my parents decided it was really time to leave Germany. Things were getting very, very bad. They noticed how many Germans were out of work. My parents had gone earlier, I should say, maybe this was, before, I don't know exactly whether it was just after or even before my baby picture, probably after, um, they went to see the Latvian consul. And the Latvian consul said, um, don't worry about leaving Germany. Uh, oh, this was, excuse me, I, it was before before my birth because the Latvian consulate told my parents, uh, Germany is a country where the, every little town has an opera house. You're better off here. I'll let you know when it's time to leave. When I leave, you should leave. And that was, you know, at this point, my parents decided they're going to leave on their own. And so they left. We went for several months to Latvia to just visit family. And then my father got us set up in Paris. So we moved to France in 1938. In 1938, and what happened when when the Germans occupied France? Well, that's very interesting. Um, I can tell you first another um, episode of what happened to me with the as if, with a regard to the baby picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in France, I had I developed an earache at some point, and in those days it was common for the doctors to make house calls. 
so this doctor came to the house and made some comment about my being a cute kid or something. And my mother promptly told him the story of her cover girl baby. And this doctor was Jewish. His name was Dr. Levy. He immediately said, oh, my word, give me, let me take this story to Paris Soir. I have an edit, friend who's the editor of the newspaper. If we could blast this out, we'll publicly we'll show the we'll ridicule the Nazi philosophy and the, the clear example of the stupidity of their the folly of their uh, ideology. Right. And my mother was ready to let him have this magazine, just you know, borrow it to come to print out the story. And my father refused. He said, no, 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 we're not going to make this public. You know, he, the doctor said, but there are too many sympathizers in France that sympathize with the Germans. It would be a great, you know, effort to try to dispel the, their ideas. And finally the doctor said to my father in French, and I'll say, vous savez, Monsieur Levinson, vous n'avez rien à craindre maintenant. Vous êtes en France maintenant which means you have nothing to fear now. You are in France now. Right. And, of course, history has proved my father right. And we never gave it to him. It was tough in France for us when we, in Paris, after France fell, um, we um, were told for us never to speak German on the streets. And speaking German was kind of natural for my sister and me, particularly since we had brought with us from Germany a German um, nanny, so to speak. She was um, trained as a nurse, and my parents felt they couldn't leave her in Germany. A young Jewish girl would certainly perish. And so she came to Germany with us, but she was notorious for never learning any other languages. So we just spoke, continued to speak German with her. She lived with us, and so it was natural for us to speak German on the streets, and it was very dangerous to do that. And one time, my sister and I almost fell into the trap, taking chocolates from a very nice soldier we thought who was speaking German to us until we caught ourselves and ran away. But um, it it got very difficult. I also was unhappy in school. I had no friends. I found French nationalism. I don't know why I had no friends, but school was pretty dreary. I think it may have had something to do with the fact that I spoke German. So um, life was pretty dreary at some point, although Paris was still Paris, so there were lots of wonderful things that could be done at the beginning before the Germans started shutting every Jews out of everything. Uh, this was before the time that the Jews had to wear yellow stars, so that was not an issue. But the Nazis did come to our apartment looking for us one day. Um, it was... Uh, it turns out that, you know, in my father had a very good friend called George, a childhood friend who lived in Paris also. And most nice apartment buildings have concierges in 
parents that sort of are supers, what we call superintendents here, but they're more visible. They live on the ground floor. They watch people come in and out and so on. And my father mentioned to this concierge one day that we're going to go visit Monsieur Georges, which was fortuitous because several hours later, Monsieur Georges gets a phone call, and it was for us, and the concierge was on the line saying the Germans had been there looking for us, and they said they would come back. So she suggested I, that we not come back. And that was, that was tough. That was the end of our nice apartment. I should say we had a very elegant apartment in the 8th arrondissement near the Parc Monceau, the Address was Quatre Rue de Messine. But from there on, my mother, my sister, and I went off to Bordeaux, which was in the Zone Libre, free zone. And my father stayed with Monsieur Georges for the longest time, sleeping, I don't know, on the sofa, whatever. And we very courageously went back to empty out our apartment. Fortunately, he was very, very fortunate he was not caught. He had packers coming in there, packing things up. In particular, there were some things that were of particular value to us. Uh, my grandfather had been a, both a cantor in Latvia and a painter, a very, very good painter. And my mother had only three paintings from him that were very valuable to her. And, of course, there was the piano that my father had given to my mother right. when I was born. So anyway, he decided to pack things up and eventually managed to close, empty everything out and send it to Portugal, where it was stored for throughout the war. And uh, it stayed there until... Uh, well after the war until we moved to New York. Um, I could tell you one other interesting article, uh, I mean, event that happened in 1939. Uh In the summer of 1939, that was before France fell, but it was after Kristallnacht in Germany and so on. And my mother wanted very much to go back to Latvia for her mother to see the grandchildren, right. in other words, to see my sister and me. And she, I, I always remember this story as one of the big arguments that my parents had. They both said it was a huge argument in Paris. My mother wanted to go back. My father said, you can't go. You have to travel through Germany. It's too dangerous. My mother said, but I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not going to get involved. I'll just talk, play with the children. Uh, my father said, uh, you, you may be stopped and asked questions. Someone may even ask you if you're Jewish. No, you can't go, and back and forth. And eventually, of course, my father prevailed, thank God, because every one of my family members who was caught on the other line, on the other side of Germany, after September 1, 1939, was killed. Everyone. I had one aunt, my mother's oldest sister, who had left Latvia long before she was considerably older. And when she married, she had moved to then Leningrad. Her descendants are now living in Israel. 
But everyone who was in Latvia after September 1, 39, was killed, murdered. Right. Your whole story, which is, is quite a compelling and unique one, what's the one thing that you want everyone to take away from your story? So uh, what's the one lesson you'd like all our listeners to take away from all the things you've just told us? I think the most important thing to me is that um, prejudice about against Jews is has long existed and is unfounded. The Nazi ideology indicated that Jews treated Jews as subhumans and then elect, chose a Jewish kid to represent their to represent them. Uh, I think. The main thing is that anti-Semitism is ill-founded, that it's perverse, that it should be countered wherever possible. And I'm telling my story uh, now, after many years of silence, as a way to expose the, the folly that existed. One, make one small contribution. Uh -huh. towards uh, erasing the uh, prejudice. Uh, I feel a sense of satisfaction, almost a little bit of a sense of revenge that I can, uh, that I'm alive and can tell this story. Uh -huh. And um, I, of course, belong to the chorus of people who say never again uh -huh. with a strong, with a very, very anxious fear that, in fact, that may not be heeded and that, God forbid, things could get out of control and misinterpreted and misread and for any other folly, folly that may come up. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Hesse Taft coming to you with a, a really, really fascinating story uh, from the Nazi era and a story that really shows uh, just how stupid, just how backwards, just how ugly racism and specifically anti-Semitism is in, in all of their forms. And I've worked with a, a number of different groups that combated anti-Semitism, especially when I was uh, back at Simon Fraser University. And one of the things that always struck me about those who advocated for anti-Semitic views is just how backwards and just how stupid these views actually were. These views are, are generally founded on on the most base prejudice insofar as that even from the historical perspective, the things that are being presented by these people just make no sense at all. And now we see uh, in the news over the last couple of weeks a lot of really brutal coverage that is being extended towards the State of Israel. We have the State of Israel under attack by uh, by a group of terrorists firing rockets into civilian cities, and, and Israel gets critiqued for defending themselves. Well, as I chatted with Hesse Taft uh, before and after the interview, she too expressed concerns that uh, increasing attitudes towards the Jewish people uh, do constitute anti-Semitism. She says she's heard some of this rhetoric before. So what I all just want to leave uh, my listeners with today is, is just really take a look uh, at her story, not only as a great story that highlights uh, how anti-Semitism is ludicrous, but but take her story seriously and, and look around you and think about what there is going on today, uh, what you're reading in your newspaper, what you're seeing on your television set, uh, what sort of blogs or Facebook posts you're reading about Israel, about the Jewish people, 
and just ask yourself some very important questions about whether or not these criticisms are actually legitimate or whether or not what we're seeing is an anti-Semitism slowly but surely creeping back into our cultural mainstream. So once again, thank all of you for tuning in to hear this interview. We hope that you'll, you'll join us again next week for, for what promises to be another very enlightening interview. And uh, we hope you all have a great weekend.